Your complacency in the face of racism is just as bad as racism. But go ahead and change for your little talk back because the 22nd episode of Ghostlight begins now. was just straight up the truth today wasn't it i said what i said we're just starting with the truth so you know where we're gonna end today okay welcome back okay listen I said that is what to I said. you theater and quite frankly like that is to you broadway happy one year anniversary of being shut down jesus and quite frankly that's like See that's, where racism gets you. Oh, no. I was going to say, that's not even just, that doesn't even, for me, apply just to racism. That applies to all things. If you're complacent in the face of any form of injustice, mm, whether that now. is, you know, um, I don't know, pick one. There's so many. The list, <laughs> the list goes on and on. If you are complacent in the face of injustice, be like, well, what am I, was I supposed to do? I was just... Blah, blah, blah. Like, it's fine. You can, you can have your, your mountains of excuses. They don't mean shit, but you can have them. Um, just know that you are no better um, than the very thing that we are taking a stand against. Yep. So there's and that. And there it is. Anyway. And, and, welcome, and welcome here. <sighs> what's going on everybody i am mara williams and i'm elena walton yeah i really need to come up with a song for myself and welcome back to ghostlight illuminating black artists we you guys are back with us and we are back with you yes we are can i get a what what not a what what <laughs> i don't know just let me be lame <laughs> Let me be laid by myself. Hardcore. Do you want more? There you go. I just told my age by saying that. All right. Well, without further ado, let's do do some dancing. I'm just kidding. I don't know why. Okay. I don't know. It's from Greece. Rydell, huh? I, I don't know why. Every time I say without without further ado, I always think of let's do do some dancing because that was my favorite scene from the movie when I was a kid. Anyway, um... Won't you hand job, baby? Listen, what? I was here for it. You hear me? Y'all black, but y'all know that one of y'all first musicals. Seven-year-old me was all the way here for hand all job, of it. Baby. And you can tell me I was not gonna play yeah. Rizzo someday. Anyway, oh, yeah. oh I want to be the Sandy to your Rizzo. Listen, that's fine with me. We can, <laughs> we can, we can do it. It's fine. But at any rate, it's time for the morning announcements. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Somebody pointed out to me that I didn't sing the intro on the last episode. You did? I didn't. And someone pointed it y'all out. Y'all be all up in our mouths. Like, I need y'all to bed, bed. Bad. Like, none of y'all damn business. Who knows? I think I... But like, I think no. y'all didn't give us like 10 feet. Somebody was just like, feet. so you didn't even sing the intro and I was prepared. Like my spirit was ready and it wasn't even there. And I was like, oh, like I'm going to need you to put that back. And I was just like, oh, well, all right. Like, you woke up and chose violence. Okay. 
Right. Anyway, um, I have nothing. So go ahead. I mean, I just, I'm really excited about something that's coming up this week. Go for it. So on the 18th, so obviously like theater shut down, like happy one year anniversary, but uh, the public, they've been doing these uh, radio plays, virtual plays, you know, trying to keep our spirits up as much as they try. And we are going to have the, this performance of Romeo, Romeo and Juliet. Which is, of yes. course, an art, an audio revival of Shakespeare's classic. And guess who will be playing Romeo? Um, it's okay. It's not that bad. I was gonna say I don't know. Tell Juan, me. Juan Castano. And guess who will be playing Juliet? Who? Lupita. Yes. Goes, okay. Yes! Let's cut to the exciting part. Yes. Okay. I was like, I'm not telling you this for nothing. So yes. I'm really excited. And guess what, y'all? Guess what, y'all? It is free. Shut your mouth. It is free. So all you have to do is go on the uh, green space the, from New York Public website and just RSVP your ticket. Yes. And you get to see this wonderful, beautiful actress blow your mind for free. Yes. Where they do that at? Where they do that at? So that is the only exciting thing that I really have coming up up this week um other than the fact that i am just personally in like a world of crazy you know and um it is woman's history month and this woman is trying to stay alive that's real it is so real all right i have nothing that was everything um we can move on give us a ding okay ding 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 Places, places. It's time for the show. Okay. I'm not doing this today. All right, y'all. What up? It was my week. Mm-hmm. My week. Mm-mm. And honey, let me just tell y'all something. I chose this play, Sight Unseen. And baby, listen. Um, you know what? I'm going to save all of that. Let's just... um. <laughs> Lord Jesus, let's just get this into was a, it. This was a pig. This, this was, was a pig, wasn't it? Because when I tell you, girl, let's let's get it. I'm gonna let you do your thing because I have. Woo! Go ahead. Um. So here we are, y'all. Uh, my pick for this here episode was Stick Fly by the one and only Queen Lydia R. Diamond. So first things first, she hmm, is an award-winning playwright. Uh, to put it lightly, uh, some of her other works include Smart People, Voyeurs de Venus, The Bluest Eye, The Gift Horse, Harriet Jacobs, The Inside, and Stage Black. Uh, she has worked with, pick a theater, any theater, Arena Stage, Court Theater, Chicago Dramatist, Company One, Congo Square, The Goodman, Hartford Stage, Huntington, Jubilee, Kansas City Rep. Just to name a few. Um, as far as her awards are concerned, let me try, let me make an attempt at counting the ways. She was the 0506 WEB Du Bois Institute non resident fellow. Love it. 2007 playwright in residence at Steppenwolf. Uh, an 0607 Huntington playwright fellow. A 2012 Sundance Institute Playwright Lab Creative Advisor. And she is a board member at Chicago Dramatists. 
Um, and a 2012 and 2013 Radcliffe Institute fellow. Put mm. your hands together for our playwright, Lydia Woo! R. Diamond. Go Ooh, off, yes. go off, go off, sis, honey. Woo! Um, let's um, get into the play we're talking about today. So we're talking about Stick Fly. Yes. Uh, a little production history on this play. It premiered in March of 2006 uh, by at the Congo Square Theater in Chicago. And then it was uh, later performed again in 2009 at the Matrix Theater Company in Los Angeles. And then again a year later in 2010 at the Honey Theater, Huntington, excuse me, Huntington Theater Company at the Boston Center for the Arts. And then it made its Broadway debut at the mm-hmm. Court Theater on December 8th, 2011. It was directed by Kenny Leon and y'all get into this cast. Legends on legends in this original Broadway cast. Um, we are talking about Dulé Hill, Mackay Pfeiffer, Condola Rashad, oh. Ruben Santiago Hudson, Tracy Thomas. Yes! And the music, the inc- incidental music for the Broadway production was composed by Alicia Keys. Um, wow. Right? Um, so there's a little bit about that. Um, get into it. All right. So, um, hmm. Again, yeah, I chose this play, Sight Unseen, and baby. Oh gosh, it yeah, it was. This Y'all, was a, before I even like, I know like, this was a, this was a masterpiece. First of all, before you even first, get into first it, there's that. it was it it like we're I'm about to get this into these was, characters. This needed to be on television. Like I to, need to see this in listen, the theater. I need this they, to they be charge too much, a whole. They charge, Dramatic series. I need a whole season for me to watch. Uh, to, of I all this because need it. I have so many. There are questions. other stories that need to be told out of this story. Listen, okay? and like I know that, and I know it's basically we're getting ahead of ourselves, but honestly, you're gonna thank us later because I need y'all to sit back and just be prepared. Strap make sure in. your teacup is Strap empty in. because it's about to run it over. You hear me? And I'm about to make sure my wine glass is full. Oh, you heard me? Okay, I cannot. With you. All right. So, with that being said, let's get into our players. So, we have Taylor, 27, daughter from an earlier marriage of renowned public intellectual James Bradley Scott. She was raised by a single mother, college professor, although she carries his name and so has had entree to some social privileges. Her father was not a part of her life. She also has gone without financially. Then we have Kent, AKA Spoon, 31, youngest son of the LeVay family. He has grown up with an artistic disposition in a family of doctors and lawyers. Although financially privileged, he has struggled to find his place in life and with his family. He loves Taylor, and though she may not see it, his gentleness is a valuable ingredient in their relationship. And I say amen to that, because listen. And next we have Cheryl. Cheryl uh, can be is described as being 18 to 22 of age, daughter of the family maid, 
pretty, bright, always well-intentioned. She has always had a crush on Flip, who we're going to talk about right now. Flip, a.k.a. Harold LeVay, 36, oldest son of the LeVay family, the golden boy who, with some compromises, has fallen in line with his father's expectations. He is an incorrigible ladies' man. That's putting it lightly. That's very polite from our playwright. Dad, uh, a.k.a. Joe LeVay, 58 to 62. He's the LeVay patriarch, a well-intentioned man who rules his family with a firm, loving hand. He, like Flip, has always had a way with women. Mm. Mm. Kimber, (laughs) 32, white, Flip's girlfriend. Kimber is an intelligent woman with a quick wit and a sincere warmth. Unlike Taylor, her social status matches that of the LeVays, with, of course, the undeniable privilege of whiteness. Of this she is aware, and on some level, appalled. I'm, you know, I'm going to save my thoughts about that for later. All right. <laughs> so, there are our players. So, I'm, this is going to be a quick to the point summary, honey, because... Child, we're going to get into the details of things along the way. Because, woo! All right, because so here's what's happening. Hills. Huh, now? Hills and valleys, like, so Honey, much to go over. There's so much here. All right, so here's a quick down and dirty summary of, of this here play, y'all. So, <laughs> so, the play takes place at the Whitcomb household in mm-hmm. Martha's Vineyard. Fancy. So Martha's Vineyard is where we are, y'all. There is no specific um, era or, you know, time or anything as to when this play takes place. So I believe I am, I uh, believe that the playwright is, uh, did it that way so that this play is timeless and ageless um, so that you are not um, buckled down to um, a specific, um, era when uh, producing this play I also think that she wrote the play and I could be completely incorrect so if by any chance Lydia is listening to this she could very well cackle and be like girl incorrect Um, but I believe she also did not specify when this play takes place because I feel often um, when plays like this are performed and discussed and analyzed by critics and in classrooms a lot of the action that takes place, the behavioral patterns of these characters gets explained away by saying, well, we have to look at the context of the time that we're in. We have to look Mm. at the context. And I feel like she wanted to uh, eliminate that excuse. And that's why we don't have a specific uh, date or time as to when um, this here story takes place. I could be in, completely incorrect. But that's what mm-hmm. I got from from that. Um, her not giving us that. At any rate, so here we are. Um, Martha's Vineyard, as I said. So Kent and Taylor are recently engaged, and the point of this trip to the Whitcomb home, uh, their you know vacation home. Uh, is because uh, she is supposed to be meeting his parents and his family and, you know, and everyone's getting to know each other and it's supposed to be a family weekend and a good time. 
Upon mm-hmm. their arrival, however, they are realizing that it is uh, quickly unfolding to be anything but that. Uh, Cheryl is there. Cheryl, as you know, was described, is the daughter of the family's maid who's been with them for years and for decades. You know, a whole right. eighteen years to be specific, um, and at least. Uh, and um, her mother is sick. That is what we are told, and that is why she is there in place of her mom to prepare the home and you know uh, do the work of taking care of the family, so on and so forth. Uh, dad soon arrives after, you know, Kent and Taylor, you know, make themselves comfortable. And um, mom isn't there. We don't know where Mrs. LeVay is at the don't moment. Don't know where the hell she we is. We don't know where she is. You know, everyone wants to know where she is, but we don't know. And uh, soon, um, Flip and Miss Kimber uh, follow suit. They also arrive at the home. Uh, Flip and Kimber are romantically involved. We don't know to what degree, but we know they are involved. And so here yes. all we are. All the players are set, and we are here to observe this, uh, what is supposed to be a lovely, familial weekend that, of course, becomes anything but... Um, and drama ensues, to put and it And when lightly. drama ensues, child, see, she means that drama ensues. This ain't like no... Honey. Oh, drama ensues, meaning the plot still pushes forward. When I the say the plot develop, and they have it, <laughs> it is thick as a ball of cold grits. Honey. <laughs> and that, and, woo, that even might be putting it too light. But yeah, it gets real. So, with all that being said, Mariah... How'd you feel about this play? I mean, I literally just said it. I feel like I was, it was <sighs> the piping hot tea that kept coming from left and right. I mean, right it just didn't stop. With every, with every stroke of the pen, I just, I could not keep up at the, at some point. I was like, listen, y'all need to get it together. And of course, some of it I was, of course, was very like, of course, the maid's daughter. But you also expect... You expect a lot of this shit from white folks. But you also expect the drama from black folks. So put rich black folks that are also very aware of their blackness. Um, you get a good story. <laughs> Honey. Okay, so let's get into it. So for this one, y'all, we're not doing a three-line uh, three of action. Y'all know I love a good three-line of action. Let's get these motherfuckers together. <laughs> but, honey, no. Like, the tea is just too piping hot. So we're just going to jump right into the things. We're going to be, we're gonna be jumping us, around a lot. It. You've had a whole week to sit with this play if you wanted to, you know, really get into it. Um, yes. You know, keep up. Here we are. Okay. So let's let's just start with the initial controversy that is um, presented to us in this play. So right oh. off the bat, you okay. know, here we are. I've already told you all that Flip and Kimber, this black man and this white woman, are romantically involved. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and I've also told you all that Taylor, um, while she does have this, you know, father who is well-renowned and um, famous and uh, a great thinker. As we get into the play, we understand just how brilliant of a figure um, he was and how um, his work 
um, is handled with uh, all the deference. Um, but however, though she came, she is uh, biologically connected to that. In no way has she necessarily uh, reaped the benefits of, of mm-hmm. that, having that connection to him. Um, aside from carrying his name. And so right. here we are, we have this black woman and this white woman, and they get into uh, the conversation that black women and white women have been having until this very day, which is this discussion of privilege and um, status and uh, how... It's despite- just so interesting because this yeah. white woman is like studying... And works in the inner city, and that always makes my ass itch. And it's hard when you're when you well when you when when you just have a woman who is constantly telling, well, these are the problems with with black kids. These are the problems with black kids. It's like, how do you know what is the real meat and potatoes? And I get that she has degrees in it, and I also get that possibly she's doing the best work that she can because I mean we've all seen Freedom Riders, you know, so. <laughs> It's but to sit up in a black person's face and to I don't know try to trump them in conversation try to diminish another another woman and then on top of that it's a black woman as a white woman like in in front of black company like nah it just I think that Taylor had every right of going off on her Taylor you know she's weird she a little crazy as 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 Doctor Levey would say. She's a little weird, but she's definitely. This is not my week, so I'm gonna go ahead and say it. That if like I was in this play, I definitely, I definitely should play Taylor. Definitely, definitely, definitely. She's weird and she's kooky, but she she means what she says, and and I think that she she's very aware. She's very aware of her surroundings, almost too aware at a fault where you can see that it weighs on her and and her human her herself as a human herself as a woman herself as a person it weighs on her and her intellect gets ahead of her and it's it's a sad place to be i mean you and i are both very smart well educated people and sometimes like you want to turn your mind off and just be able to relax in situations that may make you uncomfortable but don't feel the need to say anything but like that logic that is always ahead which taylor has she she leads with logic for sure it it hurts it hurts because you can't relax in situations you can't let something pass you by you can't go and not say something you know what i'm saying and not speak when you feel like something is unfair so yeah (laughs) listen okay so um, let me just give you all a little bit of context to this conversation we're having right now. Um, Taylor and Kim, t- here we are. Kimber is is calm, cool, collective white woman that helps inner city kids, and Taylor ain't having that shit. And is a very she's she's a little awkward, but she's also a black woman, and they're also both the new women shown up to the house, which I think is like real real tea. Like, why would we be acting this way at our niggas house, anyways? fancy house anyways i wouldn't but since we're here listen no but i mean specifically where the meat and potatoes of this kind i mean the they had this is an ongoing discussion throughout the play that's why i kind of wanted to just go ahead right now at the start and um knock this out so 
the specific moment I am talking about. So Taylor is telling a story, um, you know, an anecdote, if you will, um, from her undergrad mm-hmm. years at Harvard, um, where... Uh, they were discussing this uh, platform of philosophy in which they were trying to, um, her and this group, this study group that she was in, um, were trying to discuss this idea of a utopian society, you know, and in their version, they had gotten so far in the discussion as as to say that, well, you know, the utopian society would be ran by nothing but women, and so therefore it would be, you know, whoo! 10 times better than the world we're living in right now because no patriarchy. And so uh, Taylor then says like, okay, well, great. We're having this discussion, but we have yet to talk about race. We have yet to talk about race and how it's going to affect this new society that we're wanting to live in. And so the Beckys, as you know, yes, she's in a class full of Beckys. That's what she said. The Beckys, as she calls them, are, you know, quick to jump to the defense and, oh, no, and, well, not like that, and, you know, well, let's talk about it, and racism, like, you know, that's not something that needs to be, you know, included. We don't need to talk about that. You know, that's, that's unnecessary. Um, and so uh, she talked about how this uh, lack of acknowledgement from not only her classmates and professors sent her into a nervous breakdown in which she spent days upon days playing Vegas style solitaire on her laptop and doing nothing but that and, and binging um on food and 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 that was it. And then um you know, she kind of just came out of it on her own and like went on her way and she was just talking about how, you know, fucked up it was. And so then Camber decided to, you know, chime in as right. liberal women do. Um and talk about how, well, if you think that's bad, well, you are still at Harvard, girl. Like, yeah, all of that was awful, but you were still at Harvard and oh. everything mm-hmm. else. And, mm. So then what's the problem? Let's talk about my inner city school not where children. She grew up, but they her, eat all the ramen students. noodles. And not where she grew up, not her experience, but what she has seen in the, you know, I, the, the playwright didn't tell us, but I say give or take six to 12 months that she has spent working with these inner city, and I say this with heavy air quotes, y'all, inner city children. Um, but she's like, look at all, they eat all the ramen Not noodles the ramen and noodles. oh, life is so hard in the projects and Shut everything up. is tough and look at what they face. I'm not saying that your suffering is not significant. I'm just saying, Check your privilege because, and, uh, and, and here we are. And let me just say this. I don't know why it is that when black people, and this is why we're here, y'all. It took us a while, but we're here now. Why is it that when black people acquire a certain amount of money or wealth or fame or notoriety, that white people think that, that it's like they feel that they have the right and, and, and to tell us which I don't know why it's shocking because look at all the other things right. white people feel they have the right to do. But specifically with in this issue, they have the right to tell us that we're no longer entitled to be, and not even entitled, we're no longer allowed 
to be hurt or to speak on moments of racism in our lives, in our journey to achieving said notoriety and fame and fortune, we're not allowed to complain. We're not allowed to acknowledge that racism still exists. I say we like I'm wealthy. You wealthy, They girl. are not allowed to... Honey, they are not allowed to acknowledge. They're not allowed to be sad about anything ever again, ever again. They made it out of the ghetto and Le Projects, and they can buy the finest of Fiji water. They keep it on tap. They, um, you know, can go to the best schools. They go to Stanford and Harvard and Columbia and all the other Ivies. Like, they have it. So what gives them the right to complain? And I just, y'all kill me. Like, Mariah, do you, anything? No, I think you're absolutely right because it's like, even when you're sitting in those places, you are still a fish out of water. You are still looked at as um, what needs to happen. You know, oh, she's the exception. She made it in because of this. No matter where your background is, no matter who you have, you always have to. It's just the same. It's the same old thing we have to work twice as hard to get half as much because even if we have done the work let's let's say that you they didn't because every one of those every one of these characters even though they come from money they had some type of privilege other than taylor right they have they also are extremely intelligent you know what i'm saying they Mm -hmm. also had to actually put one foot in front of the other and prove no matter what nobody as much as taylor taylor really had to prove more um of who she was because of her name and and that estrangement but every time you walk in no one sees your mind and that was what taylor was saying she was like every time that i walk in it doesn't matter how good i am at what i do it doesn't matter how weird i am it doesn't matter how smart i am because every time that i open up my mouth to speak to engage in a conversation in a class where we talk about philosophy where the point is to engage in conversation and to debate and to um challenge each other i have to give a lesson to everyone about race and then i am the angry black woman and then i am the one looked at as oh well why did you do it like this well why are why are you talking to each other oh i hope that you didn't offend me yes i'm gonna call them beckys because they're acting like them so I just, I, I feel for Taylor 1,000%. Exactly. And then what kills me about this is that the very people who are, the very people who are spouting this garbage are the same people, are the exact same people who are the first in line to check you um, mm-hmm. if they feel like you're getting too uppity and too beside yourself because of your blackness. So it's like we're damned if we do or we're damned if we don't. If we try to just, like we, we've talked about in previous episodes, how it doesn't matter how much money you have, how many letters you have behind your name, what amount of notoriety you acquire. You um, walk into your skin is you black. Walk into, you, you, you walk automatically into are knocked room, down. Right. You walk into a room, melanated as all hell, and no one gives a shit about anything you have to offer or bring to the table. It mm-hmm. ends for you. With your appearance, with anyway, we talk about that, and but then and and then, so we we know that these 
black people exist. They kind of are like, you know what? I've made it. I've gotten to a certain place, you know, racism, all of that. None of that um, applies to me. You know, I can just settle into this new, they just treated me like that because I was poor. Now that I'm, I'm wealthy, I, I don't have to acknowledge any of that. So, you know, we have those black people who do the thing, but here it is. Here y'all come ready ready yep. and and, ready. and like sitting and waiting for the first opportunity that you have to knock that person down and remind them of the fact that at the end of the day they still ain't nothing, nothing other than a nigga you still a nigga at the end of the day so it's like and then no. and they wonder why so many black people we say so many black people need to go to therapy so it's like what because is because of this right there what because is the thing you can't because if you stay where you are you're in you're oh, well then you're a mooch you're aware you're a welfare queen you're a hud munching ass baby producing ass leech who won't get off the teat of good white america exactly and then when you stand up for yourself who do you think you are who do you think you are? And it's like, you can't win for fucking losing. Being a black woman, you cannot win for losing. It doesn't matter Hi. where you are. It doesn't matter what platform you are standing on to speak. It doesn't matter what room you are in. You are always looked at as, why won't she be quiet? Can you please shut her up? Oh my gosh, here she goes on. No, oh great now we got her talking and now it's going to be an argument oh she's so aggressive oh she's so bitter oh she's so angry oh she's so this oh she's so black and it's just it's exhausting to the point where taylor had a mental break and it's like been there sister been there honey been there back there a couple of times and then they want to call you a basket case but anyway so been there back there a couple of times and then there's that so pushing forward um did you have anything else you wanted to put on that not not on that i'm sure there'll be more coming oh girl it's only a matter of time okay so there's that so something else that is happening simultaneously amongst all of this mess um on a messier not necessarily a lighter note but on a messier note mm-hmm. give y'all a little bit of tea so when Flip enters the home, the first person that he shares an interaction with uh, is Taylor. Right off the bat, it's awkward. It's weird. The mm-hmm. uh, We can tell. It's very clear that these two individuals know each other. My dumbass didn't get it at first. Listen, I know. I caught that right away. I caught that. Woo, I caught that right away. So, you know, we, we don't know how. We don't know why. Um... But as the, the, the tea continues to pour, we uh-huh. find out that six years ago. In uh, Atlanta. In Atlanta. Uh, Taylor and Flip had uh, an entanglement, as the kids That's say the word. these days. Um, a, one-night, a one-night entanglement and have not seen each other since we find out we you know all at the same time that this happened before she met kent and at the time when she met kent she had no idea no uh, knowledge at all that this was Flip's brother i mean how could she know like you know right. she met him in the city this encounter happened in it uh, the encounter between her and flip happened in atlanta however upon seeing him she quickly was like oh lord and then we find out even more that she 
caught feelings from that one night stand and was high key offended when Flip didn't contact her again. And so now she's seeing him for the first time with this white woman on his arm on the weekend she's supposed to be meeting her fiance's family. Great. And so within this conversation, um, we're not here just uh, for the tea, uh, but within mm-hmm. the exchange, one of the exchanges that they had, basically she says, you know, she wants to know, she's like, why didn't you call me? Why didn't I ever hear from you again? And rather than standing in the fact that he, the reason, because we, he admits to this later, the reason that he did not bother contacting her is because she, he knew on a base level that she was out of his league. Mm. But in the moment when they're having the conversation, he's just like, well, I knew, I knew right away what was, you were no different than anybody else. You try to present yourself like you were smart and cute and perky and all knowing and all these things and well-educated and came from a great background, you know, but here it is. All I had to do was ask you to dinner. All I had to do was give you a fine meal and a glass of fine wine and you were ready and you were G2G. You were good Mm. to go. You were ready. You were ready to, you know, toss them pants to the side and, and get into the things you knew what I was coming for and you were ready to toss it up and she it, she did not think that that's what she was doing but she sure as hell was listen he was just like so don't try to act don't try to act like you didn't know what it was you knew what it was you're a grown woman you knew what you were signing up for taylor then counters with the fact that she's just like absolutely not i thought you liked me i thought we were you know connecting and so then for me anyway that begs the question black men and being emotionally stunted. I, especially when it comes to relationships, mm-hmm. romantic relationships specifically, I don't even have like an opinion. I just want to ask like, where did that come from? It can't come from, you know, well, here it is. They have a man who, you know, comes from a, a wealthy background. He had the best of everything. Loves his mama. Mama right. loves him. Um, has a good relationship with his father. Where, where does that come What are your thoughts? Like all the excuses that are usually like, you know, tossed up when we talk about me who are emotionally stunted in this way, um, mm-hmm. specifically when it comes to the treatment of black women. This is what we get. Mara, what, what are your thoughts? Go ahead. Go on. I, there's this air of I am better than you are and you and ha ha ha. You see my status he has this like you see my status and you want that and so you'll throw yourself at me but oh gold digger you have no idea what it is like to live on this status so yes I'm gonna be with you for one good night but I don't see you as as equal because how could I you know what I'm saying and I niggas like that is why I just don't understand how you can at one point say you love a woman that you came from, but look at another woman that looks like her and figuratively like her and say, nah, not, that's not it. Or, um, 
this whole it's just this holier than thou that I don't I don't think that race has gotten to him, but his status has gotten to him. And I just and 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 thinking that all women because you haven't been you haven't grown up around other uh or the black women that you have grown up around it's very slim and they are very well maintained and or you've probably ran through them or they know better. So if they don't give it up to you, it's like mm, next. And if they do, it's like how oh you just it's just because you want me and you see what car I drive and you see where I come from and you see this money and you see I'm paying for dinner, and it's it's just nasty how like once again going back, black women cannot do anything without it being judged. You know they right. can't enjoy themselves without being judged. And then here's my thing because. He doesn't really give a shit about Kimber either. No, not at all. Like, you know, he treats her like shit as well. But there is still a distinct level of deference and respect that he gives to Kimber that he just, that he does not give to Taylor. Mm -hmm. Like, because of the bottom line, he, because later it's revealed y'all that he, he absolutely knew who Taylor was, and he did hold her in higher guard, and he did know that she was better than him, like, as I've already stated. But it's made clear, clear as day that what, the, all this nastiness that is coming from him in regards to Taylor, it's come from, coming from jealousy. It's the fact yep. that his brother is, you know, with her. He, you know, isn't afraid to stand in his worth and, um, stand in the worth and value of this beautiful black woman, um, in a way that he was not. He is at a level of his his emotional maturity is at a level um, of which he can appreciate something good and val and you know of value and um yeah, all the things. Um yep. but even in sitting in his jealousy, he still is going out of his way to make this black woman feel less than and so it's just like when we when we look at things like um emotionally and physically abusive relationships between black men and black women um as a survivor of of domestic violence between a you know a black man and me um the messaging is is just that well he was you know jealous in some way or he he just couldn't handle how fabulous you were he couldn't handle um seeing you standing your light you know he wanted to dim your light because you know he couldn't he he was feeling inadequate about the things he had going on with himself like that is what we there's an excuse there's, there's always, always an excuse for an ex- him. there there there's and always an excuse it's never he's just wrong it's never somebody he's didn't just fucking, wrong. Somebody didn't fucking te- teach this child right from wrong, and now he grew up as a child man that thought he, that he could inflict pain on me because he has no control over his anger, because he has no control over being able to... Not, not because of anything I did. Not because I'm too fabulous. Bitch, of course I'm fabulous. And who, right. who am I? Why should I have to be with somebody that dim that is trying to constantly dim my light? And then when he is doing that, and as hard enough as it is to get out of this type of situation, then you tell me, oh, it's, it's, it's because of me. You know, you're not saying like, oh, I'm bad, but you're at the end of the day, you're saying it's because of me. You know, it's because that. I'm too great, and it's because he is jealous of me, and it's like, no, why can't it be him? Why can't it be the man? Why? That. Because it is him. Why are we always constantly making excuses for men? 
and I'm sick of it. And, and, and I'm just gonna and say Slip this, gets y'all. It. I'm just gonna. I'm sorry. Did you have anything else you want to say? Go ahead. Nope. I'm here. I'm just gonna say this. I'm gonna put use this as the button on this conversation. We're gonna push forward. All I'm gonna say is this is something that y'all need to consider. Why does the black community treat the egregious, harmful, and awful behavior of black men with the same? uh, They handle it with the same treatment that white America and white and the white media handle the discussion of crimes committed against black people. By white men. Mm-hmm. It's very, especially when that harmful behavior is perpetuated against black women. It's y'all run to excuses for the behavior the ex- in the exact same manner that white media try to excuse the violent behavior of white men against other black people, against mm-hmm. people. Period. Because them two little white boys who shot up Columbine High School, they said they they took no prisoners. They didn't care black, white, whoever wanted it could get it. Right. The young man who shot up a movie theater dressed as a Joker, the little asshole who shot up a church of black people. The first thing everyone does is run to the background and the psyche and they want to know the why and oh, let's dig into the why. And it is no different than how the black community handles black men mm-hmm. specifically when they perpetuate violence against black women. Why? Something to consider. Moving on. Okay, so so now that we've uh, used Flip to kind of beat y'all, beat black men in their piss poor, some of their piss poor behavior over the head, we're going to talk about Kent to kind of lift y'all up because we done, you know, gave y'all an ass whooping. Um, yes. So let's talk about Kent and let's um, specifically the relationship between Kent, Blip, and their father. Um, And in this moment, we're going to talk about, uh, well, here, here, let me give context first. The bottom line is, is that uh, dad considers himself to be a man's man. He considers himself to be, you know, the epitome of manliness, specifically mm-hmm. specifically black manliness. That includes uh, having a strong disposition, maintaining a job and a career to support your family, putting your dreams and your hopes on the back burner from the very moment you say, I do, and especially from the moment, you know, that uh, lady in your life, uh, that partner in your life, tells you that uh, they are expecting or that children are involved, period. Um, he considers his son, uh, Flip, to be, you know, molded in his perfect image, even though mm-hmm. later we, we kind of figure out, you know, that's not true. We'll get into that later. But, you know, he, um, and he treats Kent, um, treat is, Kent is treated as the black sheep. Um, he is like, mm, you know, Flip, that's, that's my boy. I don't know what went wrong with you. And, this is not just because of Kent and like, you know, cause we get from the script that he kind of hopped around in terms of, in terms of um, career choice. And um, first it was, he wanted to be a lawyer and then he went to business school and like, you know, he's that kid, the kid that's changing their major all the time. And right. it's feeling like, you a know, a professional student. Exactly. You know, that super, super, super senior. Um, And that person who just feels like, yeah, I'm interested in this today, but the moment it doesn't feel right, I'm on to the next thing. Like, I don't feel bound by anything. And 
that's not even the main part about Kent that seems to anger his father and his brother. It's the softness about him. And I'm using the word softness because more often than not, and dare I say way too often, the word softness when it comes to the discussion of black men is immediately given a negative connotation. And I'm hoping that we can, that Mariah and I can offer something to that conversation that, that mm -hmm. shifts that, that thought and that belief that the idea of softness being a characteristic or a trait uh, within a black man is a bad thing. It's, yeah. That it's looked on negatively, that is looked on as a weakness and something that, you know, quickly needs to change. Right. Because that's the, that's the heart of the issue between these three men. Uh, Father and Flip are angry because despite everything, despite being a black man in America, despite, despite all of his experiences, just no matter how much the two of them pick on him individually and together, he maintains this love and light and softness about him. He cares about people and things and issues in the world. He is a light in the world. And uh, he views his status, and in, in my opinion, and Mariah, you can jump in and correct me if you think I'm wrong, but I feel like he views his status and um, the privilege, uh, the, the small bit of privilege that he was, um, that was given to, that he was birthed with as um, um, a member of his family. He, he, he wants to utilize it and mm -hmm. somehow make the world better. Like I just have so, of all of these people who are going through it, I just have so much hope for him. Um, what are your what are your thoughts? Just that. Much. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that Kent is overall an optimist, and he stays that way throughout the the piece, even when there is, and the times that him and Taylor get into it, it's his frustration boiling over, and he's always able to come back and say, you know, like, ah, oh, fuck, I'm sorry, you know, emotions are getting heated, but like the way that he is always seems to be put in his place mm. by Flip and uh, Father LeVay Joe. Uh, the way that he's always told that he is not allowed to feel a certain type of way. And he, he, turn, he turns into a shell of a human being almost immediately when he gets there. You can tell that outside of this world where his dad and his father, I mean, his dad and his brother are there, that he is all around human you know what i'm saying he right. is joy and he has feelings and he is able to express them and he is funny and he is all of these things but when he is around them he shuts that down and he shuts down and he turns into a complete shell and why would any parent want to only see a shell of their child why would any parent want to um, make their child feel like they cannot be their true authentic self around them. And it, it is, it is the toxicity of Joe, which we haven't mm. touched on yet, but it's the toxicity of Joe that is, um, making Kent, that is keeping Kent from acting on the potential that is full and that is his and so um Elena didn't, hasn't mentioned this yet but Kent just recently wrote a book and then he brought yep. a 
copy of his manuscript to um to this vacation because he wants his dad to read it everybody has read it except for his father and we can tell from the few passages that um we get to hear um in the play um that is very much involved uh with the relationship between him and his father sorry go ahead yeah no you're absolutely right it's the it's it's even Kimber White asked, was like, well, it's when you're writing your truth that when the true form comes out, and that is exactly what it is. It is it is emotional, it is raw, and and that emotional rawness, like be, having to be, cover that up, and I mean, he's not, he he's a straight man that just has, happens to have feelings and knows how to express them. And yes. why is that so wrong? How is that so taboo to be a straight man that has feelings that is able to express them in a healthy manner? Like, that should be the norm, not yeah. the exception. <laughs> and here you we know? are. Not just, and not just, I would say that is not um, an exception that is exclusive to uh, straight, cisgender, black men. Um, right. Black men, period. Black boy joy. Like, it shouldn't just be a hashtag, but a movement. I don't understand right. Like, that is something that we seriously need to address, this. And, like, of course we all know that it's, you know, as all of the issues amongst the black community that is rooted in slavery. And, but now that we have that knowledge, now that we know that, um, you know, it's not enough just to have the knowledge. I feel like that is where, um, as a community, we get stuck. We think that, okay, well, we solved the puzzle. We know what the answer is. We, we figured it out. Like, you know, this, specifically when it comes to issues within our community, between us and each other, um, uh -huh. you know, we are very quick to take action about, you know, when uh, the white man um, tries to squash us and take us down. But when we get into the meat and potatoes of the issues that face us as a community within each other, how we treat each other, it always gets stuck at, well, we know what the answer is. And so we're just going to let sleeping dogs lie. Right. We're just going to leave it right there. You know, this this uh, idea of toxic black masculinity, you know, it's rooted in slavery and all these things. And, well, you know, we know what the answer is, girl. And then that's where that's where the conversation ends. And if someone wants to correct me on that, if they want to challenge me on that. Like, feel free to slide into my DMs. But it's true. Like, we 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 talk about why it is. We bash black men for it. We say do better. And then that's it. There's no work being done change work has to be done for change to be made on every single level exactly every single generation and it is not and 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 while in this play it is specific to the treatment of a black man by two of his black male family members it is not mm -hmm. this is not treatment that is specific to only you know, it's not black man on black man crime you know it's right. not it's it's it runs rampant even black women um, I was talking about this um, today um, with another one of my friends. Why is it that, you know, a black woman, like, you know, black women will say like, oh, girl, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting, girl. I'm waiting, on, I'm what? waiting on my Boaz, girl. You know, I'm, I'm ready for my Boaz man. I'm praying for him, girl. I want a man who's patient and kind and understanding and loves me, girl. He's going to rub my feet and, oh, he's just going to listen to me. He's going to be emotionally available to me. He's going to talk to me. He's going to do all of these things. And the moment that that man comes along, 
he is dismissed because emotional availability and vulnerability in black men is uh, seen as weak. A faux pas, yeah. It's seen as a faux pas. It's seen as less than. How I'm going to have, you know, I want to have, you know, how, how you, I'm supposed to have kids with you and you potentially raising my future son. And I don't want my son, you know, being a this or a that. Mm-hmm. So this is not something that is specifically to how black fathers treat others, that specific son who is, you know, open and, you know, comes into the world with his heart wide open and, and keeps it open despite everything um, that tries to force it shut. Um, I'm not going to be as arrogant as to say I have the answer to that or that I even say that I have the solution to that problem. Um, but it just it just needs to be said. It needs to be had that that the problem is there. The the solutions that we've come up with so far, which is like talking and adjusting and knowing the root of it is not fixing the problem <laughs> and that the problem needs to be fixed. Yeah, it's time for the next step. I don't know if that starts with the parents of black boys who grow to be black men making the just making the act of choice to encourage that. I know it, it, while that is presenting itself to me as the simplest and easiest answer, it and maybe it is just parents deciding that they are going to raise black boys to be kind open emotionally available black men i don't know if that if the answer is as simple as that but i do know that we can start i feel like we can start by making the act of choice to encourage vulnerability and and i and not to and i and i'm calling out myself in this moment too because even um uh even with my romantic partner whenever he gets vulnerable with me or like like even makes like dips his toe into pouring his heart out to me I'll jokingly say like oh so you getting mushy oh so you get oh look at you oh don't don't act like you love me you care about me and like even though I know that I in the moment that is coming from a teasing loving place because I'll quickly flip to no I'm just kidding I'm just kidding no 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 because Mm -hmm. immediately he'll go like okay never mind and I'm like no 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 I'm just joking I'm just joking and Right there was a moment that presented itself where that kind of openness and vulnerability could have been encouraged, but we shut it down. I don't know why we do it, um, but let's just stop. Right. That's it. That's all I have on that. Mariah, anything you want to add? Nope. I think that you hit the nail on the head with a hammer. Bet. Okay. So um, this is the final thing that I uh, want to talk about. Spoiler alert, if you were wanting to read the play after this, um, I mean, still do it because phenomenal. Um, but honey, usually we try not to drop the, you know, the huge bombs of these plays. Um, but I feel like the conversation is too valuable for us not to discuss right. it. So if you want to read the play before you listen to this part, I'm giving you ample time and opportunity. Spoiler to alert. Turn it off. Spoiler alert. So y'all, Whew, the shit hits the fan and we find out that Cheryl is the daughter of the LeVay patriarch. That's right, honey. Daddy stepped out on Mrs. LeVay. With the maid. With the maid. But and I Cheryl just... is a product of that affair. And we also find out um, 
Because Cheryl, I didn't even you know, realize I had somebody to cuss out, but I do. Come on, keep going. Oh, the cussing out is here. I did. I forgot. That's fine. That. Here, let me just lay this out, girl. And no, you, lay this out. You can feel free. So we find out that heart. Cheryl is the product of that affair, and that the reason that her mom sent her uh, to the house, even before I get into that, throughout her life, Cheryl has been afforded, you know, every. Uh, a bit of a privilege and access uh, that Kent and Flip have had, um, you know, while her mother was working, and I say that with air quotes, um, for the LeVay family, um, she was exposed to a lot. And she also, we find out, have, has just graduated uh, recently from a very prestigious high school um, in which she, which she believed she received a scholarship. But we later found out, of course, because Daddy LeVay is her daddy, he was paying was her tuition because he knew that that was his child. Now, as the tease runneth over, we find out um, from Mr. LeVay that he, well, at least he claims because we don't ever get to talk to Mrs. LeVay and we don't get to talk to Cheryl's mama. He didn't know, he was not aware that he was her father until four years ago, which puts her right at, you know, starting high school, which is when he started paying for her tuition and so on and so forth. And he claims mm -hmm. that he didn't know about it. The only reason he did find out is because Cheryl's mom, uh, Miss Ellie, the, you know, um, came to him and was just like, so let's talk about this trust. My baby going to be, you know, out of high school soon. It's time to start talking about her future. You need to set up a trust in her name. We all, we both know that we were, you know, hitting these sheets in the midnight hour. She's yours. So what, where are these funds at? Period. Point blank. Um, that is what he claims. Um, but out of this, like, you know, the, the, this, and uh, we also find out that the reason that Cheryl, was, her mom actually sent her to work at the house, like, was not because she was sick. It was because she wanted, you know, upon her graduating, she was like, okay, it's time because this trust is going to be coming soon. You, uh, it's time for you to know the truth. And she sent her there alone to kind of force the hand of dad to, um, reveal the truth to her and when mm -hmm. he wouldn't do it she chooses to do it over the phone um and that's how Cheryl finds out unfortunately so before I get into what this predicament um what issue this brought up for me I know Mariah is cussing out on her spear are you cussing out the daddy or the mama the mama in my opinion they both deserve to get cussed the out so mama. go for it girl go Yo, miss Ellie Bring that ass here. Because you was wrong. The way that you set your own child up for that disappointment that hurt and for you to not even be there as her only support system, thinking that she is going to do her job and see her almost like brothers just to find out that they're the real... And then for her to tell her, well, you need to go up to him and ask him, is there anything that you want to say to me? That is toxic. That is toxic. That is gonna fuck her up for the rest of her life. And yes, yeah, she's gonna get her money. Yes, yeah, she gonna she she has been afforded all the opportunity. Yes, yeah, she is very smart, very talented, and she's gonna do well in life. But that trauma of not understanding where you belong, the trauma of going to sleep 
to a picture of a man that was not your father and making her believe lying to her for years what she is a senior in high school so she's either 17 or 18 lying to her to that for that long <sighs> and then her, her going out into the world thinking that her life is the way it is and then this bomb being dropped on her and you not even setting her up and you leaving her you pushing her out telling her oh there's a fire over there pushing her out closing the door and locking it and telling her she can't come back in that's so fucked up like cheryl is a blunt person she's straight to the point type of bitch like i fucks with her low-key i fucks with her being shady as hell and uh coffee can be made the same way whether it's caffeinated or decaf like Either way, I'm fine with all of that. But Cheryl, your mama ain't shit. The way you set up your child to be hurt and hurt like that without you even being there for her to lay her head on, for her to fall back on, that's really fucked up. That's really um, toxic. That's, it's nasty. Why would you ever put your child in that type of situation? And I don't, I don't approve. I have nothing to add to that. My cussing out is going to go hand in hand. Um with the issue that um, that this brought up for me. Um, because once this is all put on the table and, you know, the yelling has happened and the arguments have been had, um, in the de- because this is very much the, this reveal is very much the climax um, of this play. Um, the denouement um, um, within this play um, is, happens upon uh, dad leaving, um, Taylor, surprisingly enough, confronts him and is just like, I need to know why. She's triggered by all this because, you know, we find, um, you know, we're mentioning this now, um, that her father uh, left her mom for whatever mm-hmm. reason. Um, did not, you know, and when he left her mom, he left her too. He was never involved in her life whatsoever. Uh, he remarried. He had another child um, at the opening of this play um, in the prologue. Uh, we meet Taylor at his funeral and she's weeping not over the fact that he died, but even in his obituary um, amongst the people, you know, when it's talking about the people who, you know, these are the bereaved. She's a footnote. It literally says he leaves behind his, his wife, his son, Marcus, and his other child from a previous marriage. And so she's triggered by all of this when she um, is, you know, by, uh, by way of Cheryl's situation. And she's just like, I need to know why. I want to know why fathers leave. I want to know why. I don't understand. What is it, like, what is it um, that allows you to just shut down um, to this biological connection that we have? You know, she even goes as far as like in the middle of her breaking down to call him dad. And she's just like, Daddy, why? Why? Why did you leave me? Mm-hmm. And, and so on and so forth. And all I'm going to have, all I have to say is this. I'm going to keep this cursing out very brief. Um, we all know how babies are made. Yes. Um, if you bring a child into this world, into this world, and I say this as a parent, and the child of an absentee parent. Mm. There is no excuse for you not to be involved. I don't care how messy it is. I don't care how much it might blow up your life. 
I don't care if you can't stand, if you want to just take a huge ass shit on the head of the person you made that child with. I don't care. There is no excuse for not being nope. involved at a base level. Yeah. And when I say a base level, I'm talking about financially. Because some of y'all be thinking that signing your name on a check and because the government garnishes your wage, your wages from your check so that that child can receive uh, child support. That that's you feel enough. that that's where your responsibility ends. And, and I'm here to tell you that that never, is the least that ever. you can do. There is no excuse for you to know that there is a part of you, you having the awareness of knowing that there is a part of you living, breathing, and walking around on this dirt ball we call Earth and not huh, contributing to their emotional and physical and mental well-being. Mm-hmm. Take care of your fucking kids. Take care of your fucking kids. In the script, he gave all this excuse about like, well, you know, and I was a man and sometimes a man, it's, it's self-preservation. And it's, a, you know, and like very much bordering on this, on this idea of fight or flight response when it comes to parenting. And yeah, as a parent, yeah, it's sometimes there is a, a fight or flight response to parenting, but the fight part of the, of the flight or flight when it comes to parenting shouldn't go any further than the front door. Mm-hmm. That's yep. all I have. Do you have anything you wanted to add to that? Nope. You got it right. You hit the nail once again, right on the head. All right, bet. So um, I'm ready to close the hymnal. Was there anything else that you specifically wanted to talk about? Was there anybody else that I felt like cussing out? Let me think. Let me think. Let me think. I know I got a hint of what you're going to close the hymnal about. Um, Are we, where the fuck was the mother? Gone. As well she should be. <laughs> I just need another play where she... Because the monologues in this piece... Can we just talk about the structure of this piece? The monologues within this play are gold. The scenes. Like, these are some great scenes. Like, I... Like, gold. Like, these were some... It was so well written. I just want to talk a second just... Because I know... I kind of have a hint of what you're going to close the hymnal about. I just want to talk about how well this piece was written. It was, even though these characters are a status that I can only dream of, it was very much real and I could relate to them and I loved relating to them. You know, mm-hmm. I I felt like they were somebody that I could relate to I felt like um the monologue work the the text was just beautiful it was well written out there were times where uh where actors were rhyming with each other and I really enjoyed that I I enjoyed how well developed these characters were and how it felt like it was very thought out how what their irks were what their ins and outs were these were um not just formulated and thrown on a paper they were actually well thought out so just kudos to this playwright wonderful wonderful work that is i think i'm done now no that's beautiful and honestly you said everything i what i I could have ever thought to say so i'm just gonna dive right in into the closing of the hymnal um 
in this play, you know, uh, when I was reading those character de- uh, descriptions, uh, we talked about how Kent and that his, he was, you know, AKA Spoon. Spoon is a nickname that was given to him by Taylor. Uh, it was never explicitly explained in the text as to how he got this. Uh, and she, you know, she said it was a pet name. She said, to, you know, it was a pet name for him. And it was never explained exclu- uh, specifically in the script how this uh, pet name, and I say that with air quotes as well, came about. But, I, mm-hmm. you know, uh, doesn't take much to figure out. Um, and, you know, where this came from. Spoon came from the idea of a silver spoon, as in the fact that he had, he was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. And yep. uh, it was her way Again, and this goes back to um, the conversation we've already had about black women and how they berate the vulnerability um, of black men. It, it, it goes so, to me personally, that nickname goes so far beyond the idea that he comes from wealth and status. It goes to the fact that he is naive and has uh, rose-colored glasses when it comes to how he views the world and his thoughts and his beliefs and the way he emotes and has his feelings. It's, it's commentary on that. It's, it's, you are... are uh, teasing him uh, for who he is. Not just where he comes from, but who he is. Which is why Cheryl and even even the white woman, and I Lord, this especially makes me upset because I had to say that a white white woman was right. But even Uh when they are saying you aren't good enough for him, they are right! And they are correct. And and I say all this to say, y'all black people who are the first to say that money doesn't make you better than anybody? Stop acting like not having money makes you less than everybody. There you go. Instead of sitting so uh, so high on your horse and being so quick to want to drag down someone else, and I'm not to say that Kent doesn't have his faults or his problems or whatever, I'm speaking specifically to this issue. Rather than wasting your breath, because the people with the wealth and the money and the status, they're good. Mm-hmm. And they're just going to sit back and let you be mad. Rather than sitting and talking about how their money doesn't make them better than anybody, stop feeling like you having financially less makes you holistically less. Right. You're assigning that less than simple to yourself. They're not doing it. You're right. Money doesn't make you better than anyone. So the fact that you, your pockets may be light in this moment, because mm-hmm. we all go, especially during this whole ass Panda Express, you're, the you fact that your me. pockets are light in this moment, stop associating your value and your worth with, your, with how much you have in your pocket. You're right. Money doesn't make you better than anybody. So you not having any money shouldn't make you less than anybody. Some of y'all are going to roll your eyes and tell me to go fuck myself in this moment, but hopefully after a while you're chew on this and it'll, and it'll settle in. Stop giving the others, black, white, whoever, that much power over how yep. you see yourself. We are already fighting against systematic racism and oppression. Don't throw, your, don't, don't throw yourself into this, this heap, this pile of infinitely tall, how high it is of as being black and, and existing that you are actively having to navigate and, and, and fight against every day. Don't throw yourself on top of the pile. 
You are your best ally and your best yes. asset. Find the worth in yourself. Because if, you would, if we would spend less time doing that, more time doing that, and less time worrying about what worrying uh, about counting other people's ducats, we'd probably start seeing a little bit more flow in the cash of our own. Yep. Because we'd be focusing on thriving and succeeding and not trying to measure your wallet against someone else's. So if money doesn't make you better than anyone, having less does not make you worse than anyone. And she constantly, you saw that she was constantly trying to prove herself, like constantly had to show I, that Trying she to show how smart to be she there. is. Trying to show how, no, you know, just oh, all she's, where she's been and all she has. And then at the same time, trying to uh, also, like you, you can't have your cake and eat it too, sis. You can't. Right. Have, you know, like, oh, look at all that I have. But at the same time, I still have less. And while that is true, yes, with all of the knowledge and, and privilege and whatever that, that you had, yes, white America still views you as less than. True. I'm not saying mm -hmm. that that is not true. But what is also true is that what's worse than white America and, you know, the MAGA seeing you as less is that low-key you see yourself as less. Mm -hmm. Because that's why you're mad. And you're directing it, your anger at this other black person who's only, you know, even in all of their, you know, fucked up way of seeing and doing things. To make yourself feel better, you got to find a way to push them down lower. And in that way, you are no better than, than, than who they are. Yep. You're no better than the very oppression that you claim to be fighting against because you're putting yourself there by having that mindset so there's that and that I'm ain't done. nothing but the truth i'm done and that is the that is the motherfucking show ding 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 Woo. well everyone it is time for one of my favorite moments of the show is this show where i ask elena i tell elena to close her eyes and imagine a world where she knows where her check is coming from and she knows that her check will be on time wonder what a wonderful world that is and in that world while elena's eyes are closed i'm going to ask her to reflect on stick fly and then i'm going to ask her hmm Tell me, tell me, Elena, tell me, darling, what role will, what role in this production will you be playing and any role in the production process will you be playing for your check will be coming in your very fat check? Yes, ma'am. Listen. And what capacity will that check be signed out to you for? I'm directing this. I can see that. I am directing this. Um, specifically what I would have a wonderful time um, playing with as a director is this idea of don't say you weren't seen, say you didn't see nobody. The idea mm -hmm. of these separate conversa these separate conversations that are happening in the kitchen and in the living room or in the kitchen and in the porch, these separate simultaneous conversations that are happening throughout this script, I would have a ball of a time um, just playing with that and how um, I don't want to say manipulates, but how it affects uh, the storytelling. And um, I feel like there are so many, it's just a matter of choice. What is 
most important to you to hone in on as a director. She's giving you our playwright, Go Off This, has given us so much to play with. Um, I feel like even if I were to direct this once and then to wait like maybe five or 10 years and direct it again, those two productions would not be the same. I wouldn't just want to direct this once. I would want to direct it once and then come back again after like a decade and direct it again. Mm-hmm. I feel like this is a piece you can come back to over and over again and continue to mine um, and find something different every time. So there's that. I think that's absolutely amazing. All right, let's move on. Ding, ding, ding. Elena, it has been a year since Broadway shut down. Yeah, we're going to talk about this briefly. In place of Letters to a Young Queen or a King, we're going to talk about uh, the anniversary of the pandemic and Broadway briefly because i i'm just gonna keep it 100 with y'all my mental health can't take i'm not trying to talk about this long i have so many feelings i've already cried about this but go ahead Mariah. i have so many feelings that i don't know what to do with them it's just we've talked about this briefly before on the podcast but like honestly a week before a week ago a year and a week ago I really thought that I was going to have my life in order. I really thought that I had a plan and that plan was going to be executed flawlessly. And I just knew that things were going to happen. And it just, this year has brought out just how stupid people are and how selfish people are. And not only has my industry shut down and not only have I been just feeling like complete and total shit, I... Humanity has really made me question it more than I already was. And the love and care and filled upness that I feel in a the- in a theater space, not even if I'm on stage, if I'm behind stage, if I'm in the audience, if I'm just in that space, has been lost. And I just, I'm in mourning still. And I, people have been able to pick up and move on. And I, in some ways, I'm able to, you know, keep art alive in me. But it has been not fun to do. It has been hard to do. It has been a hell of a year. And I'm still standing, which is great. But it's, I don't know. I feel like, I feel like I'm constantly questioning myself and I'm, And then some theatrical people, even though the industry is shut down, it just goes to show how privileged it is to be a a theater maker, especially a white theater maker. And it reminds me of how much these people have money and they are able to be okay or able to take time off and they're able to uh, find their dream position because they're not worried about if tomorrow's bill is going to be paid. And I'm... and that illusion that we were on the same page because we were moving and dancing and performing together is just it's been shattered and I don't know it's it's sad I'm I'm thankful last year I got to see so many shows in New York and on March March 11th I saw Mrs. Doubtfire and I was supposed to see Flying Over Sunset on March 12th but it it like it doesn't even equate to 
It fucking sucks, y'all. It fucking sucks. It, it fucking sucks, sucks and it it's fucking sucks. awful. I'm just gonna say this, and then we just gonna tell y'all goodbye. Um, I was trying to be poetic you, and shit, but I'm sad. No, it, it fucking sucks. And so I'm just gonna say this, and I feel like we can just end it here. You're not alone. We're all miserable. Take a deep breath. Drink your water. Keep working on your songs. Don't give up. Don't give up on yourself. Um, don't give up um, on... Uh, don't lose hope. Stay encouraged. Know that um, you got at least two people who are in it right along with you. Um, if if yes. this podcast um, does nothing else, like that was the reason we started this podcast was that we felt um isolated and alone and uh like there uh we had no outlet and there was no way for us to make art or talk about art and that it would we were at the time were terrified um and still terrified um that there will never be an opportunity to make or discuss art ever again and that's why we made this podcast so no if you don't listen to this podcast for any other reason, do it to remind you as a constant bi-weekly reminder that you are not by yourself. There are two yep. people who are right where you are, spiritually, emotionally, financially, all of it, um, unless you're wealthy, because we're not that. Um, so there's that. If you want to keep up, <laughs> I'm ready to leave. If you want to keep up with Ghostlight, follow us on Instagram um, at Ghostlight underscore podcast. Find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Ghostlight podcast. If you want to, you know, tell us we're great, um, uh, email a letter to a young queen or king. I know it's been a couple of weeks since we've done one, but, you know, shit's real Bear out here. Y'all get, we'll, y'all get one on episode 23. Um but if you want to share with us, if you want to suggest to play anything, uh, email us, ghostlight.scripts at gmail.com. Morale, give us your thank you so we can leave, sis. As always, thank you to Bo King for our opening music. And thank you, Ed Jr., the new ruler who make us sound cute even when we not feeling it on the outside or inside. Damn. And that's it. Bye. Peace.